Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the last decade, what we believe future generations will think, and whether they will conclude it was the moment when we ceased to be worthy of running our own affairs, and what key lessons should investors pick out from amongst all the noise, with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. Well, it's been a slightly quieter week so far in terms of news and data. In the UK, the election campaigns are underway and in the US, impeachment proceedings have gone public. Um, so I guess the data's not really added or subtracted much from where uh, what we already know. Will, what's your take on that? Yeah, Toby, before we get into that... Uh... No, don't. I can't. <laughs> Can I say, dear listeners, the, Toby looks like a mix between Paddington Bear and Biggles today. But... <laughs> it's cold. I put a scarf on. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was a very nice scarf. Anyway, just I thought you were beyond. Way. I thought you were beyond this level of humiliation. <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. But I think Toby, you're right. Yeah, more or less. China is um, still slowing a bit. Um, though there may be some distortions in that data from Singles Day, you know, that sort of gigantic um, Alibaba retail binge. Uh, Germany seems to have avoided recession, but again, nothing really game changing, I would say. Right. So we're pulling the trigger a little early. The decade's not over yet, but I'm up for a review nonetheless. I know you always say that we want to be wary of the idea that we're living through a turning point in history. Most of the time, those sort of perceptions are really just a function of our innate desire to feel special rather than any real turning point. Those turning points tend to be a bit rarer. However, Mr. Buzzkill, that's surely not true of the moment. This is a decade where the post-war order was pretty much flipped on its head. Economic cataclysm for the ages has been followed by President Trump, Brexit, the return of authoritarian leadership. How's the team performed through all of this, Will? Yeah, it's been hair-raising, hasn't it, Toby? And we certainly cannot claim to have... uh confidently foreseen any of the kind of major political developments ahead of time in truth Uh, but in a review of how we performed uh, through all of this as an investment team I would say that the reason that we still came out on top um, was that we stayed primarily focused on the real signals from the economy uh, rather than getting sort of uh, you know distracted too much by all the political hullabaloo Um, and we remembered kind of you know the golden rule of uh, of the global economy or at least one of them namely that growth is the norm um, not the exception now uh, it's oversimplifying the efforts of a you know as you know a large and very hard-working team of geniuses that we uh, us do represent here but that that, that's probably the sort of uh, the size of it I think. Okay, now you always say that politics doesn't matter as much as as many people would argue, certainly where markets are concerned. But liberal democracy, and I use liberal in its true meaning, not its political meaning, liberal democracy has rarely looked more in danger to my eyes. Is there a real implosion of the political order, as some are suggesting? Surely that would be more worthy of a bit of investment panic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think... um... There are some who would argue that liberal democracy is serving its exact purpose at the moment, just to turn it on its head a bit. Um, In a sense, it was designed as a system to kind of moderate the perpetual fight uh, between the universes of law, 
and um, the, uh, the universes of law and politics. Now, the aim is to basically keep this constantly uh, changing conflict this side of violence. Uh, you know, the, so the Austrian-British philosopher Karl Popper, um, he, he sort of famously argued that um, democracy was really a, a means of kind of bloodlessly transferring power rather than suggesting the electorate sort of innately know what's best and, um, and who's best to, uh, or a best place to govern directly. Now, obviously, that's just one view of it. Um, but under that framework, you'd say that liberal democracy is doing okay. The other point is... Um, it, it just it's it's worth, worth reflecting. I think it was Churchill also that said that democracy is the worst form of government, but it's better than all of the alternatives. Yeah. This, notion, this notion that it's always going to be bad. Don't expect it to be fantastic, but it's better than the alternatives. Well, he was also almost also famously uh, quite rude about the electorate. You know, he was always the one saying, you know, you want an argument against democracy, spend five minutes with a voter. Uh, and he could spend five minutes with me and realise how little we know and how sort of ill-equipped we are to make the decisions, uh, the decisions of government. We've got other things on our mind. We're trying to make money for our clients, obviously. But the other point I think that we can say is, um, is how can we know how robust and effective our checks on executive power really are if they are never tested uh, and they have certainly been um, uh, been given a thorough kind of MOT um, in the last few years in the developed world by the way do you know what MOT stands for I found this out this morning no Ministry of Transport a now defunct yeah. government ministry because that's now the Department for Trans uh, the Department for Transport isn't it yeah, I've, I've never even thought about it. It's not very interesting. Just out of interest, <laughs> does that spare us from a ludicrous reference to the 18th century? Probably, probably. Okay, you might be able to get away with it. Well, there you are, fact fans. There's your piece of nonsense trivia from our chief investment officer. Now, well, let's get back on track. What about the economy? This hasn't been a normal economic recovery, has it? All I hear from various garlanded economists is terms like secular stagnation, Japanization, or other exotic-sounding economic diseases, which all seem to describe why we're going to be stuck with low growth and low inflation seemingly forever. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few points here. I mean, one, yes, growth and inflation has disappointed a bit in this um, economic cycle. But I think sort of two, maybe behavioural uh, things um, are, are a little bit uh, a little bit relevant. So that one is you could say that the sort of you know, there's an idea of a collective hypochondria, uh, and I'm sure that um, we're not uh, alone. Uh, in having been guilty of trying to diagnose a common hangover with something a little bit more exotic. Um, now, we can see 07, 08, and what happens is a little like this. There was a very a pretty wild party in some corners of the global economy in the run-up to 07, 08. There was then a very nasty hangover that hit those, uh, even those who hadn't really been to the party um, unfairly. The world's economists, having failed to predict the end of this party, has seemed to have devoted most of their time since to telling us why there will be no more parties ever, and it is not a common hangover, it's a range of much more exotic, uh, untreatable um, afflictions. That's always kind of been the case with that, um, that part of uh, the, the forecasting community, I guess. The other point is that there is a clear reputational asymmetry to being a doommonger. Uh, it sounds more credible, rigorous, uh, and gives you uh, a, a bigger bigger readership. Like I say, the... the, the well, this the, notion that newspapers are deeply vested in bad news, that's what sells copy. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's, um, you know, we can get into that in a second, but the, the, I think from, from the final point for me, I'd say the economy has been a bit sluggish. But I'm not sure how structural or how permanent these problems have to be. People, uh, you know, worry about an ageing population and a mountain of debt, among other things. But I'm not sure that these are factors that will be definitive um, for the future in quite the way people seem to think. For a start, 
the changing conditions of ageing are surely more relevant uh, than the share of the population that has reached some arbitrary threshold of years on the planet. You know, most of us, um, you know, are happily uh, living longer and healthier. We're not, uh, you know, as it was 200 or so years ago, you oh, know, working, we working till we're 40. I didn't say the 17th century, but no, you know, that, during that time, you know, you can expect to work till you're 40, by which time you'll be backbroken from a, you know, a life uh, of hard physical labor. You'll have five painful years of retirement before you die. Now that's not the case anymore. Yeah, there really wasn't the notion of a service economy. There certainly wasn't a digital economy. It was a very, very different industrial. It was heavy. Yeah, jobs are easier yeah. now. That's, that's the pure fact of it. We work for less and they're, they're sort of less demanding physical jobs for most people most of the time. And that may mean that we work for longer, save for less, that we, you know, so that I think making sort of big assumptions about the future pensioners uh, is wrong, I would argue. The other thing, just the debt story, I think it's not just a... Um, uh, it, it's just not the constraint that people argue. People tend to think of debt in a personal sense, i.e. I've borrowed so much, therefore I can't spend any more. But debt at the national level works a little bit differently. differently. It's very, very different. I mean, you've, you've trained me in this. It's very different to the, the Shakespearean motif of never a borrower nor a lender be, isn't it? Totally it's, correct. It's, yeah. it's absolutely essential. Yeah, well, also governments have a monopoly on violence and taxes, which tends to mean that they can sustain a little bit more debt. But otherwise, we always make the point, you know, when people talk about you know debt to GDP of 80%, they sort of think of that as a sort of binding constraint on future growth. But the UK, for example, has had way more debt to GDP and it hasn't had any effect on the growth prospects of the economy because debt and growth are not as closely related as people seem to think and people seem to Well, we're touching on that then. I get why we might be wrong about the future, but what's the explanation why stocks and shares have done so well this economic cycle, even though we've had like really slow economic growth? Is it the idea that central banks have just been artificially propping these things up with waves of quantitative easing and other funky policies? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's been a lot of that um, that talk over this economic cycle. I mean, one stat I would give is, so if you look at the US um, stock market um, and you look at the sort of the 10-year period from January the 1st, 2009, um, all the way up to sort of, you know, the beginning of this year, you can say that stocks have climbed about 230% uh, in that 10-year period. But earnings, you know, the sort of the support for that stock price, uh, stock price rise had risen 212%. And actually, if you look at cash flows, they'd almost kept track too. And actually, since September 2014, cash flows have risen faster than earnings or stock prices. So that would suggest just in this economic cycle alone, that actually, you know, the fundamental backdrop um, the fundamental backdrop has been the thing that's really driven um, stock prices higher. And that would argue against this idea that they're sort of, you know, we're waiting for a kind of huge collapse in stock prices uh, uh, just ahead of us. OK, so if we're in the spirit of doing a review, mm -hmm. something that wasn't even in my vocabulary two, three years ago is the notion of fake news. Mm -hmm. But now it's on everybody's lips. Is there more than usual? Is it a phenomenon that's just new to this decade? Well, I mean, I don't think it's new to this decade at all. I mean, fake news has been, uh, you know, and propaganda and all these kind of things. It's an age-old, um, you know, uh, tactic, um, and it's not, um, it's not new. I think the interesting thing there was there was a study um, the other day, um, and they were so basically what this study looked at is kind of sentiment mining in the media, um, 
And what this particular study is, they looked at the New York Times between 1945 and 2005. And what they look for is the existence of particular words. They're looking for the tone of media. So uh, positive, negative, uh, precisely, upbeat, downbeat. Precisely. And what they found is that the tone had become um, significantly more negative. They also did uh, a test on, I think uh, it was uh, the, an archive of translated articles from 130 countries between uh, 1979 and 2010. So that's a sort of global perspective. And what they found is that the tone of media had become significantly more negative over that time. And the second and more interesting point from this perspective is the negativity has accelerated since the advent of social media and the competition for our eyeballs, for our fleeting attention, has got ever hotter. And so it's, it's almost it's almost like we've become desensitized to it. I remember like looking at the sort of the sort of violence in, in television when I l- look at my children that would have been an 18 um, you know, when we were growing up, it seems that that's just categorised as a twelve now. It's just accepted that that's what kids are exposed to. Are we? Are we just? Na- it is it the case that, as far as news is concerned, we just need to hear really bad news now for us to care? Well, there's a whole other strand that we can go off into here about sort of people have talked about while violence, physical violence, has declined, i.e between wars, domestic violence, and all sort of, you know, this is what Stephen Penker has documented. What you point out rightly is that that seems to have coincided with a massive rise in, you know, violence in video games, uh, you know, our access, our, our access to kind of visual violence in a sense. Now, I know which one I'd rather have in a sense. It's a, it's a nice problem to have, but it's certainly something that, um, that, um, that that's a whole other kind of okay. words so, that so, we don't want to get into, I guess. So, but. so it, it, acknowledging that, the news has gotten more negative mm. and there is a shift, there a, a material quantifiable and academically proven shift in tone. In that context, where should I go to get my news? How can I possibly be expected as an investor to see the wood for the trees? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the really, really big question. And I think, you know, from our perspective, what we're, I'll give you what we think about on this front. What we're looking for always is motivation. I guess that's one of the things you always got to think about when you're reading something. Where does that writer on the political spectrum come from? What's the motivation in making a comment? How supportable are the state that they make. I guess, you know, when you're thinking about this podcast specifically, you know, our motivations are benign. What we're trying to do is to get more people invested. So as long as people know that that's our primary motivation, in a sense, we're trying to inform and uh, make uh, people better educated and sort of informed about capital markets and the global economy. And in that process, trying to, you know, persuade people of the benefits of being invested in a you know multi-asset class portfolio. Well, to, to understand in their personal context, give them the tools to make a decision about whether it's the right thing for them to do and, and what the benefits and risks might be. And precisely right. And so from that perspective, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be in our advantage to be politically swayed one way or the other, or sort of, you know, we should be dispassionate in the way that we look at the world. Now, obviously, we come at it from our own particular kind of, you know, uh, political persuasions and so on. And sometimes those can be different, difficult to kind of keep um, keep out of the keep out of the podcast. But that's just an example of some of the sort of thought processes you think about when you're listening to a particular podcast or reading a story yeah. or those kind of things. And I think you know a lot of the places I go to for my news are the kind of the, the think tanks. You know, a lot of the big kind of um, you know the global um, you know institutions such as you know the IMF, those kind of places. It's not that they're totally without sway. You know, everyone has a slight bias or others. But these are kind of generally when they write about stuff, they're quite well supported 
limited in terms of So I suppose of it's a case of about, about as, if you're reading something be a, or you're, you're watching something, you just need to be a critical evaluator of what is the motivation of the agency or the individual that is passing that information on to Absolutely correct. And I think it's what's really interesting to me is when I speak to some of my, so speaking to some of my friends, and I do the same as well, is that in your area of expertise, I have a friend who's you know very knowledgeable about rugby, and when he reads any sort of article about rugby, he's immensely critical of whoever writes it. But he's much happier on a subject he knows much less just to take the opinion of whoever that writer is verbatim and we all do the same you know and that's the thing so in the areas of expert where we're seriously expert you can pick holes in every article you can read is that right is that correct so on and so on so just try and transfer that kind of uh, that criticism, rigor. that rigour onto every subject you read about. Brilliant. Well, I think we've run out of time, so we'll cap it there. Thank you so much. Very interesting conversation this week. Look forward to catching up with you again next week. And also, listeners, look forward to catching up with you again this time next week for another edition of Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.